has been going on over the past few weeks. I have managed to catch a few of the messages um, that have been going along and it's been really fantastic to sort of hear what's been shared about mission. Um, I really loved Neil's message a few weeks ago. I actually listened to it like two or three times in the one afternoon. I just kept going back to it. It was really, really great. Um, but yeah, so talking about Micah today and the topic of my sermon today is mission is a four-letter word. Uh, so your challenge today is to figure out what the four-letter word is. And um, I just want to do a little bit of a setup. You know, so the book of Micah takes place around about 750 to 700 BCE. Um, there's been quite a long period of peace um, that's been going on for the Israel nation. Um, everything's kind of going pretty well. Um, they're, they're kind of cruising along. But then we have the uh, Neo-Assyrian Empire decides that, you know, we don't have enough land and we want more. And so they do, do this really aggressive and fast-moving campaign to expand the Assyrian Empire. And the nations of Israel and Judah um, get caught up in this. We see that between the years 734 and 727, the Assyrian regime basically do yearly campaigns against the Israel nations and, and all of the other sort of nations in that area. Every year they're coming and attacking sieging, doing all this stuff, so to the point where by the end of it, Israel, Judah, and all of the Philistine states that are in that area have been reduced to vassal states. Um, so basically what we talk about when we look at vassal states is that it's kind of not like slavery, but it's not a whole lot better. They've kind of lost their sovereignty. It's a little bit like renting a house. So you kind of get to live there. You kind of get to do pretty much whatever you want. You can earn as much money as you want, you know, but you don't own it. It's not yours. And you've got to pay rent. You've got to pay tribute to the empire who owns your land. So that's why all of these nations had been reduced to this, this vassal, vassal state. When the, um, the ruler of the Assyrian empire at the time died, the Israelites thought, yes, here's our chance. We're going to take it back. So they did this huge, big rebellion. And then the Assyrians countered with that, um, which resulted in a three-year-long siege of the... Um, of the capitals of the Israel and the Judah, Judah nations at the time, so Jerusalem and Samaria, they were wiped out at the end of this three-year-long three siege. So the two big nations of Judah and Israel had lost their capitals. So the attacks all continue. Many people get really displaced through this time. There's lots of refugees going up, down, east, west, all over the place. And it's a little bit chaotic. And that's where Micah like, talks about those things throughout. He, taught, he prophesies, you know, in, in, the early chapter, in the early chapters of Micah, he prophesies that, you know, as a result of you guys breaking the covenant, you know, the corrupt religion that's going on, all of your evil deeds that are going on, the nations of Israel and Judah, you're going to lose these things that are really important to you. You're going to lose them. And the book of Micah is split up into, it's kind of split up into three sections. It's not a very long book. It's only seven chapters, but it's split up into three sections. First, we have the judgment um, against the nations and their leaders. That's the first couple of chapters. Then, we talk, then he talks about the restoration of Zion in the next couple. And then the last two chapters are God's lawsuit against the Israel people. Um, and that's what we're going to look at today. Um, but each of those sections is split up into two further sections. And so we start with um, prophecies of judgment, and then they bring in prophecies of restoration. So Micah comes in with the, you guys suck, but there's light at the end of the tunnel. You know, so each of those sections is broken up into that. We're going to be looking at Micah chapter 6 today. Um, let's just start in prayer before we get into it. Lord, we thank you so much that we have your word 
um, that we can learn from and read and, and learn about you and help to understand your character, help to understand your love and your mercy for us and help to understand your promises um, and help to understand that you keep your word no matter what happens in life, no matter what choices we make, your promises are good and you remain faithful to your covenants that you set in front with your people. Lord, we pray that today as we look at um, your words in Micah, that you would speak to us. Lord, we come to you with open hearts and open ears and open minds. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us today um, and that we would learn something more about you and learn something more about ourselves and help to come into stronger relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we see that God's not happy with what's going on with the Israelite people and he calls his people to court. Mike has prophesied in the earlier chapters that Samaria and Jerusalem, the capitals of both Israel and Judah, would be destroyed because of the injustice and the corrupt religion that was going on there at the time. You see, the people had strayed from the covenant that God had set up. They'd walked away. They started doing their own thing again. And so effectively, God sues the people. He takes them to court and he says, Stand up and plead my case before the mountains. Let hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people and he is lodging charge against Israel. Now, you know you've really screwed up when God takes you to court. Like, really? And he calls the mountains as witnesses. Like, how cool is that? It's like, hey, Mount Lofty, come over here. You're going to bear witness. Like the mountains are the foundations of the earth. They were there at the start. Can you imagine what the mountains around have seen? The history that's happened. The great things, the bad things. All of stuff through the history of the world. The mountains have been there. And so they are called to bear witness. Because they've been there so long, they've been witnesses to... God's grace. They've been witnesses to God's mercy. They were witnesses when God created the covenant with his people. They're there to attest to God's character. In verses 3 to 5, God talks to his people and he's kind of like, what's the problem here? My people, he says, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt. I redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you. I also sent Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, the king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Baor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. What have I done to you? Like, what have I done that's made your life so bad that you've had to kind of go away and do your own thing? Time and time again, God delivers his people and time and time again, his people walk away. Time and time again, God shows his faithfulness and his righteousness that he will hold firm to the word that he says. And time and time again, the people throw it back in his face and say, yeah, no, I think we can do it better. Kind of like my way over this way a little bit better. He's sitting there going, did I not hold up my end of the bargain? 
I did all of these things for you. And so what they'd started doing is they'd started doing all of this. They'd they'd perverted the worship and they'd perverted the the sacrifice system and and they'd started going off and, and they started being really extravagant in all of these things that they were doing. And all of the rituals just became way over the top. It was, it was actually quite a time of prosperity for the Israel nation, even though um, you know, they were kind of always getting attacked and you know, they'd kind of lost a bit of their sovereignty. They were still very prosperous. They were still very wealthy. And so Micah comes in um, and he talks about the things that they were doing. In verses 6 and 7, Micah comes in and he says, well, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with my thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? They were actually doing that. They were actually offering human sacrifices as well as animal sacrifices. Ten thousand rivers of oil thousands of rams they were kind of showing off in a sense the opulence that they had god says i don't want all that stuff it's not me it's not what i've asked of you see they were they were boasting they were boasting of all their godly wondrous things they were doing i you know oh last week i sacrificed 500 rams God's like, I don't want that. That's not me. That's not what it's about. Matthew 7, 21 and 23 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name did we not drive out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? He says, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. See, God doesn't want all the stuff. God doesn't want all the pomp and ceremony. This is why Jesus kicked the Pharisees' butts. Like they were all standing there boasting really proudly in their prayer. Look at all the wonderful things I've done. Look at how godly I am. Look at how righteous I am. He doesn't want all of that. Micah tells us in verse 8, and this is kind of the the key part that we're looking at. Micah tells us what God wants. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So we've called this sermon, Mission is a Four-Letter Word. Does anyone have any ideas about what the four-letter word might be yet? It's okay if you don't. Love? Okay, so there's three components to what we've been told the Lord requires of us. Love mercy, act justly, and to walk humbly with our God. Love mercy is kind of like probably some chance, some translations um, say kindness um, instead of uh, mercy in there. 
It's probably the easiest of the three, I think, for us. Like, who doesn't love mercy? Like, who doesn't love kindness, really? I mean, it's kind of, you know, inbuilt into who we are as people. Being kind, being merciful, generous, forgiving, understanding, loving. These are all cornerstone foundations of, you know, I guess what it means to be a Christian. You know, most of, them are the, most of those things are there in the fruit of the Spirit. It's kind of a pretty easy thing for us to get a hold of. You know, being kind. It's just a part of being a decent human being, isn't it? We're kind to one another. Acting justly gets a little bit more interesting for us. Gets a little bit more challenging. The original Hebrew words in there can probably be better accurately trans, uh, translated as do justice. Justice is a cornerstone attribute of God's character in the Bible. It takes on many different forms. Sometimes we're talking about, you know, a more legalistic version of justice. So it's resulted in, you know, crime, punishment, righting wrongdoings. We see many, many times throughout the Bible where God's justice is dispensed to correct a wrong or, you know, to, to, to punish an injustice. Other times we talk about justice in the Bible, we're looking at how people are to be treated. How people are seen as less are to be treated. There are many, many times where we're given instructions on how we're to treat, you know, the orphans, the sick, the poor, the impoverished, the widows. There's lots and lots of times throughout the Bible where we're given directions on the way that we should treat, interact and respect people who have less than us or who are not as, as fortunate or, you know, with finances or health or, or whatever, they don't have as much. We're told many times on how we should interact with these people. Most prophets throughout the Bible touch on the space of doing justice and how we are to treat people. Most of them give us warnings on what's going to happen to us if we don't treat people with justice, if we don't do right by the people who have less. It shouldn't be a new concept to us. For anyone who's read, you know, much of the Bible at all, you would have come across versions of justice going on. God demands justice of his people, of us. God demands us that we are to act justly towards the poor and the oppressed. We, I say we, it's not just God demands Karen that you act justly or Anne that you act justly. He demands it of all of us. He demands it of his community. God's justice is a relational thing. It's not just about legal stuff, righting wrongs. It's about us living in right relationship with each other and it's about us living in right relationship with the people around us and it's about us bringing God's relationship to the world around us for those people who might not know anything about God. So often when we think about justice, we focus on what. What happened? What did they do wrong? What did they do that upset me? But you see, or, you know, like 
what are we going to do to fix what's gone wrong? It's all about the what. But I want to maybe posit an idea today that we've got that wrong. You see, I believe God wants us to focus on who rather than what. There's a famous line from... Sarah's going to hate me for this. There's a line from the movie Patch Adams. (laughs) That's why she's going to hate it. Um, Where Patch Adams is standing before the medical board and he's basically been accused of practising medicine without being a doctor, without being a licensed doctor. Um, Because he opened like a little clinic where he started um, treating people with things. Part of what he says in his speech to the board, though, he says, if you treat a disease, you win, you lose. You treat a person, I guarantee you win, no matter what the outcome. When we focus on the what, we really, lose quick, we really quickly lose focus of the people involved. We really quickly lose focus on the relationship. When we focus on the what, we lose focus on the who, and, and the who is what God's called us to do. The who is where God's called us to be. In Matthew 25, 31 to 46, we, see that we, we read about the story of the sheep and the goats. We're not going to read the whole lot today, but I want to read part of it. Everyone's going to be standing before God on judgment time, and he's going to say, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then they're all going to go, Lord, Lord, when did we do all of those things to you? And in verse 40, he says, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. You see, God is focused on the who. He's not focused on the what. And then at the the other half of the story, we see kind of the same thing on the other side with the goats. You know, he'll go to all of the people who didn't do those things and say, away from me, because you didn't. I was hungry and you didn't feed me. You know, I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. He sends them away because he didn't do those things to the least. Because he's so focused on the who. We need to find the who in this situation. We need to be kind to them. And we need to do justice to them. You see, that's the mission that we're called to do. Neil talked about it a few weeks ago when he, when he opened the series on, um, on mission. And he talked about the so-called Great Commission. There's nothing great about that commission. It's just what we're supposed to do. You see, in the end, mission's about who. No matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, no matter when we're doing it, no matter how we're doing it, or why we're doing it. See what I did there? It's about the who. Who is where we need to focus. And then finally we come to the biggest and probably hardest part of what Mike is telling us to do. Walk humbly with our God. There are so much in these five words, like really. You could probably do like a whole message just on these five words of walk humbly with our God. 
what I want to really focus on at the start, I'm just going to pull a couple of ideas out that, that really challenged me as I was putting this together and really got me uncomfortable, actually. Verses, uh, in this verse, the first and third word. Walk and with. They're the two most important out of the five for me. Walk and with. The words there is to walk with or to go with. God wants to be in relationship with us. We are relational beings and he has designed us to be in relationship with him. God's not some distant, you know, people watcher who just sits back with his telescope and, you know, like watches from afar and is very static and hands off. He's not. He's right here. He's among us right now. He's among us every single day. Whatever it is that we're doing, he is walking with us and he invites us to partake in that walking with him. Because God's about the who, he's not about the what. He wants to do it with us. See, it's not meant to be a one-person gig. We can't do it alone. We have to do it with him. We need to walk humbly. And so the humbly part is the next thing we need to focus on. Because you see, I think for us as evangelicals, we'll call it, it's probably the hardest part of the whole thing is to actually be humble in this space. You see, we're so in our heads. We're so into the intellectual part of what we know and we're so into the intellectualness of theology that it's really easy for us to miss the heart stuff. And the heart stuff is where the who is. The heart stuff is where the humility is. See, being humble or humility in, in, in society today is actually a pretty interesting concept. Most of the times it's got really negative connotations to it. You know, who likes being humiliated? No one. It's not a great feeling. It's not a nice thing. You know, humiliation or humility is often associated with being poor or being needy or having everything taken away, being shamed, being embarrassed, not being good enough, not being enough. It has all of these really negative associations attached to it. But when we look at humility through a biblical lens, we actually find that humility is something that we should be seeking. Humility is something that should be sought after. You see, those who are humble or, or meek before God, they show their total reliance on Him. They show that Without you, I am nothing. Without you, I can't do this. I can't walk alone through this journey. I need you beside me. Those who are humble enough to be able to recognise that and admit that are the ones who get lifted up in the end. See, those who are humble before God, they understand that it's not about the what. It's not about how I got here. It's about the fact that God's with me, no matter what is going on for my life. It's about the who. It's about recognising that relationship, obedience and people 
mean more to God than anything we could ever give him? Like, do you actually think God needs your money? Like, do you actually think God needs a thousand rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Like, he's God. He doesn't need our stuff. He needs us. Do you think God cares what type of car you drive? Do you think he cares where you shop, where you buy your clothes, how big your house is? He doesn't care about any of that because he just needs us. Now, I'm not saying you're not allowed to drive a nice car. I'm not saying you're not allowed to you know, have, work in a job that pays you a lot of money. I'm not saying you're not allowed to buy nice clothes. But I'm saying that stuff in the grand scheme of things doesn't matter to the relationship with God because God cares about the who, not the what. We're the ones who tend to care about the what. We put the focus on the what. We put emphasis on the what. We put importance on the what. And when we do that, we miss the opportunity to join the heart of God in the who. There are so many examples throughout the Bible of the way God will lift up and raise the humble. Just a few. Psalm 138, verse 6. For the Lord is high, regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Proverbs 29, 23. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. James 4:10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Matthew 23, 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. James 4, 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So many examples all through the Bible about the way God lifts up the humble and tears down the proud. It's all through scripture. Sometimes we just have to get out of our head and into our hearts. Our hearts are where the spirit lives. The hearts, the heart is the very foundation of mission and it's at the very foundation of what we're called to do. I'm not saying also that it's not great that we know our Bible well and that we focus on theology. Theology is important. Learning scripture is important. But what's the use of it when it's all just stuck in our head? What's the point? What's the point of all of the knowledge that we have if we don't put any of it into action? What's the good of the stuff we have if we don't have a who to share it with or a who to show it to? What's the good of all the theology that we've got if we just lock it inside these four walls of Glen Osmond Baptist Church? What's the point of it? How often do we sit here I've done this so many times. I've been involved with this so many times. But how many times do we sit here and we just get caught up on the semantics of an issue or the technicalities of a sentence? We just get so caught up on all of that that we talk and we talk and we talk and we talk and then we walk out the door and, oh yeah, that was a good conversation that I had this morning. And that's kind of it. Nothing happens. Nothing gets done. We sit and we talk or we leave it for someone else. 
That's Swan's job. He's paid to do that sort of stuff. You know, or that's not my calling, or that's not, you know. I'm not called to do mission. I've got news for you, you are. We're all called to do mission. Just because you might not be called to go overseas and be a missionary somewhere else, you are still a missionary. Everyone in this room is a missionary because we are called to do mission. We are called to do. We're not called to sit around and talk. We are called to do. See, when Micah says love mercy, he's telling us that we need to be or we need to do kindness and mercy. We need to do kindness towards people. When Micah says that we need to act justly or do justice to those around, he's saying we need to do justice. We're not to sit around and talk about being kind and sit around and talk about acting justly or go, oh yeah, that would be really nice if someone would do that. We are told to go and do. When Micah says to walk humbly with our God, it means we need to get off our butts and we need to take a walk of obedience with our God in relationship with him. That's what mission is. It's getting off our butts and going and doing. And that's what we're called to do. You see, mission is being with a person who needs to know that Jesus loves them and then showing them that Jesus loves them. Mission is showing, not telling. Remember Jesus said, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. You see, a proud person tells, but a humble person does. So mission's a four-letter word. Who knows what the four-letter word is? Anyone? Michelle? Help? No? Is that good? No? No, it's not an acronym. <laughs> Good clarifying question. Yeah, you're right. Mission is a verb. It's a verb. That's the four-letter word. It's a verb. Mission's a doing word. Walk. Yeah. It's a verb. So the verb is the four-letter word. Mission means we are supposed to do something. It's not that we're naming something, we're not learning about something, we're not thinking about it, we're not talking about it, we're doing it. All three of these things that Micah tells us we need to do are things that we need to do. That we need to go. You see, we are told to do, we're told to be, we're told to act, go, walk. All of these words are verbs we need to do. So we're going to turn our focus towards communion now and just in response. And I can't think of a better place for us to come to than to turn to Jesus and enter a space of humility where we can respond to him. I don't know if Jesus has said anything to you this morning, but for me personally, I found this really, really challenging because I know that there are times when I've been so stuck on being a proud person 
there's times where I have just really valued my intellect more than my action. There's so many times in my life where I've sat back and left it for somebody else to do because it made me feel a little bit uncomfortable to go and walk. There's so many times in my life where I don't walk humbly with my God. I walk proudly with myself. There's so many times in my life where I, I shut him out and I, don't, I just say, I don't need you in this. But when things go bad, that's when I'll turn pretty quickly back to him and go, no, I need your help now. Or why is this happening to me? So many times in my life, I find it really difficult sometimes to do justice. Honestly, sometimes I don't want to get involved with someone who hasn't got what I've got or who's doing it a bit tough. Sometimes I don't. It's easier sometimes to just cross to the other side of the road. One of the, um, one of the pastors at Gateway, he's quite young, but he's got such a heart for evangelism. It's, in, it's incredible. One of the things that he loves doing on a Friday or a Saturday night is he'll go to Woolworths at the end of the day and he'll buy up all of their, like, the hot chickens that they've got left over and he'll walk down Rundle Street and Rundle Mall and he'll visit all of the homeless people that are there and just give them a hot chicken. And he'll sit with them and he'll talk to them about Jesus. And he'll sit with them and he'll say, is there anything I can do? Do you need anything? This is only a hot chicken, but can I give you more? We went out for dinner with him and his wife um, late last year and we were, we were, we'd finished dinner and we were walking back towards our car and there was a, a, a homeless lady on the, on the um, sidewalk wrapped up and he just sat down with her and talked to her. We sort of kept walking. We didn't even realise he'd stopped. In my sh- like, I'm ashamed to admit this. I didn't even see her. I didn't even notice that she was there. But Josh did. And he stopped. We were, we were 30 metres down the road and I said something to Josh and Josh wasn't there. And we turned around and here he is sitting on the, on, the, on the sidewalk with this lady talking to her and saying, is there anything I can get you? Is there anything you need? He went into the shop next door and bought her a drink, came back. There's no strings attached. That's just what he does. That's his lens. He does. What he does is the very epitome of mission. He sees every single person as an opportunity to show the love of God to. And all he did with that woman that night was just, I think he just bought her a can of Coke. But he took a moment to connect with the who. He took a moment to show the love of Jesus to someone who needed to know right then and there that someone loved them, that someone noticed them. I was so ashamed of myself that night because I didn't notice her, but also because I looked at what Josh did and thought, I wouldn't do that. But that's what we're called to do. We're called to be in the who. We're we're called to go. And so this morning, my prayer is that I get the courage to actually be able to go. To get past myself. To be able to put myself in that uncomfortable space. 
and go and do. To not be so proud about what I can do, what I know, and to not be so focused on being right about it. How often do we do that? We have to prove our point. We have to prove that we know something that someone else does. We have to prove that our intellect or our idea or our theology is right and yours is wrong. I don't know if anyone else feels that in this room, but I do. I feel it all the time. My kids point it out to me quite a lot that I seem to have to know that I'm right all the time. But it's so true. For some reason, I have to be the one who's right or I have to have the last word on something. And that's just pride. So my prayer this morning is that I can let go of that pride and that I can find the humility in being able to just walk with my God and have him alongside me, doing it in partnership, doing it in relationship with my family, with my church community. So as we come to communion this morning, I want you to reflect on a couple of things. Where is your pride? And where is the who? Where's the who for you? Because that's what mission is, people. That's what God's called us to do. He's called us to be in the who. He's called us to be in the relationship. Love mercy, do justice, and walk humbly with our God. When you're ready, come and take some bread and take some juice. Find a space and sit before God and just reflect. Sit before God and let him search you. Sit before God and ask him to help you get out of your head and get into your heart. Sit before God and ask him to put you in the mix of the who. To challenge you to go out of our little comfort bubble. Sit before God and commit to doing those three things this morning. I'm just going to pray and then come forward when you're ready. Lord, I just want to start by saying I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the times that I've been too proud to walk with you. I'm sorry for the times where I haven't done justice to those who needed it. I'm sorry for the times when I haven't been merciful or kind to those around me. I'm sorry, Lord, for the times when I have to be right I'm sorry for the times that I've valued what more than who. Lord, this morning as we come before your table and we reflect on the sacrifice that you made as a father and the sacrifice that you made as a son giving up his life for creation, for your people. Lord, we come before you this morning and we say, 
search us. Search our minds and search our hearts. Lord, this morning we want to come to you and not be a people of pride. Not be a people of the what, but Lord, we want to come to you today as a people of the who. Lord, we want you to provide us opportunities to open our eyes to see the world around us with a new lens today. Lord, and that we could see people as you see them. And that we would just have a heart to share your love with anyone we come in contact with. Lord, that we would have opportunities to show your love to those people. Opportunities to stretch ourselves past what we thought we would be able to do. Lord, light a fire in our hearts for the things that are ablaze in your own. Lord, as we come before your table this morning, we remember and we reflect and we commit to a new covenant with you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Come and eat and drink when you're ready.